Attention, please. Places for top of show. Places for top of show. Hello, and welcome to Twins Talk Theater. We are Cindy and Stacy, and we're talking about theater, backstage life, and all the excitement that the audience doesn't get to see. Enjoy the show. Welcome, everyone, to today's episode of Twins Talk Theater. It is a twins episode, so it'll just be me and Cindy talking about different uh, terms, uh, words, descriptions, slang that we use in the theater world, as well as some myths and superstitions. Uh, Most of these are common to theater people, but may not be well known outside of the theater world. So we thought since we've been using slang and terms and and, uh, different information, that it might be good to go over some of them. Uh, a lot of our words are fairly simple, but they might mean something different to an outside person as they do for a theater person, such as a cue or a fly or a wing or leg or strike. Uh, they have very specific meanings in the general world. Uh, theater has very different meanings, and if you don't know what they all are, you can get pretty confused on stage directions or what's going on on stage. So, Which I'm sure all of our families get confused on a regular basis i know especially once with my uh my in-laws i was saying oh i have to go to strike and they were super confused they're like but why are you striking and i was like well we do it all the time and they were like but why would you do that and so i you know yeah they thought we're protesting theater world yeah Yeah, it's like no no we're not protesting anything we're just taking down the set and getting it all packed up and squared away which is completely different than striking because we're mad at something Uh, But we forget that not everybody uses the same terminology we do. Uh, So some of the fun ones, or some of the more common ones, are everything about the stage. So you'll often hear us say stage right or stage left or house right, house left, or things like that. So there's different ways to notate where you are in the house, which is the seating area, or on stage, which is the actual stage. We call things... Um, based on where you're located. So if you're standing on stage looking at the house or the audience, then your right side is stage right, your left side is stage left. If you go downstage, it's going towards the audience and upstage is away from the audience. I heard that that started back in the Egyptian, not Egyptian, in the Greek times when the stage was actually raked, which is another word meaning the one side was higher than the other. It kind of ramped up. So you would go down the rake towards the audience. And so it's called downstage. Vice versa, if you go up the rake away from the audience, then you go upstage. So we often just automatically know if it's stage right or stage left, as opposed to house right or house left, which means if you're sitting in the seats in the auditorium and you're looking at the stage, then the your right side is house right, which would be stage left to the actors. So often we put stage or house in front of it so that people know exactly what way we're talking about and what's going on. Otherwise, if we just say right, is it right to the audience or is it right to the actors? Now, in different countries, this is not done. In uh, Germany, for instance, everything is done from the audience point of view. So they don't talk about house right and left. They all just do it from the audience perspective, which can be confusing when different directors or actors come from different countries that we don't all necessarily have the same terms. And so it can get confusing on what right or what left everyone is talking about. I had this problem a few years back. I worked with 
did a bohem down in Florida and I worked with a director from Germany and this was the first time he had been in the United States and he kept getting really confused when he was giving stage directions to the singers and the singers were doing opposite of what he wanted and at one point he looked over at me and he was like am I saying it wrong and I was like well what way are you trying to go and he pointed and I said oh well in the United States we say it the other way and he was so it it took him a while and he even had a hard time for the rest of the run because he kept trying to correct himself and then he would confuse himself on which way he wanted people to go because in his head now he had it in like two different directions while he was trying to translate from from German to English. So it was it was very interesting to work with foreign directors and also our lead singer was from not the Ukraine but uh, Croatia. So figuring out what terms she used to go stage right or stage left so sometimes the director would just point where he wanted them to go because he just <laughs> couldn't remember which way he was trying to say which i guess could be oh but this is also confusing. this is also interesting when you do well me especially because i do so many installation pieces or uh Found shows spaces. in the round you don't have stage right and stage left because you're in the round or you're in a, a big warehouse and there's audience on all sides of you or in a thrust. And so in those kind of cases, usually the first day of rehearsal or before rehearsals even start, you sit down with the director and kind of figure out how you're going to notate information in the, the blocking book. And then you sit down with the singers or the performers on the first day of rehearsal and you kind of talk about what language you're going to use. When I did jukebox last year and we were in a like a railroad situation so we only had we had audience on two out of four sides um we ended up calling one side the orchestra side where the orchestra was and the other one was i think we called it like the front door or something like that so that we knew when talking to the singers and when taking blocking notes what was what so we didn't in that case actually use stage right or stage left because you know you were surrounded by audience, so you couldn't use those those terms. Yeah, and then think about that, because I don't usually do uh, found spaces or all. But yeah, in the round, where is stage right or stage left, unless you go with where the backstage area is. <laughs> but even that could be uh, a different, could right. be somewhere Which is completely why we did different. orchestra and non-orchestra side, because that was the only thing that we do that was consistent to this piece. Uh, some other things that we use a lot are bringing things in or out or up or down um, set pieces specifically moving them around because it's downstage and upstage. When we bring a drop in, we say in and out because we can't say bring a drop down because that would mean bring a drop. One of the big hanging fabric pieces downstage. So the terms we use for that is in and out. If we want something to fly in, come in from overhead, If we want it to fly out, meaning it's already on stage and we want it to go up and out of the way, we use those terms. Um, We use on and off for on and off stage. If a actor needs to go on stage or come off stage or maybe they exit off stage left, that means they are going to completely leave the stage, stage left, all the way outside of the audience view. Uh, That's the... Other thing is the view of the audience. Now, again, this is different for found spaces or um, non-traditional spaces, or even, I guess, traditional spaces if they're in the round. But if we're talking a proscenium space, meaning the audience sits somewhere, 
there's a big wall with an opening in it, which is called the proscenium, and you're looking at the actors on stage, there are curtains hanging everywhere, uh, usually black curtains. And these are called legs and borders. The legs are the ones on the side going up and down. The borders are the ones across the top to create the box effect for the space. Um, between the legs are called wings, and those wings are where actors enter and exit. They're usually numbered, so you know that when you get on stage, you're going to enter stage, stage right, wing three, meaning the third wing back from the proscenium, and you go on stage and you do something. So lots of terminology and words you kind of have to learn before you can even figure out what anybody's talking about, especially during a rehearsal or a tech rehearsal. Uh, moving on to those terms, a rehearsal is any time that the actor, stage manager, director, whoever's part of the rehearsal process is in a space going through the uh, show, working on the blocking, working on the actual show. Usually tech people are not there during that time. They usually don't have many props or costumes or set pieces. It's all just taped out on the floor or pretend you're picking up something and all that. When the actors and team get to the stage, it's called a tech rehearsal, short for technical rehearsal. For those is when all the technical people get involved. They get on the actual stage. There's usually the physical set there. We give them the costumes. We have lights that we work with to uh, build around them to get different lighting cues. We put them in microphones, um, add all of the technical elements to the show that the actors have been working on for a while. The actors and director and production team have been working on for a while. Once we go through a day or two or sometimes a week or two, depending on the production of Tech Week, we usually have what's called a Sitzprobe, which I know we talked about once before. I believe it's a German word, meaning the uh, first time that an orchestra and a group of cast gets together and sings through the entire score. Typically, there is no blocking or moving around. This doesn't even have to take place in the rehearsal. I mean, in the performance space, it could be a rehearsal space or another room. But it's the first time we actually hear the actors and the orchestra together. And it's very useful because even though the actors have been singing these parts for a while, they've been doing it on tracks or they've been doing it to a piano. And adding a full orchestration can be very different uh, for the musical director to figure out the timing. Where is the actor speeding up or slowing down? We need to relay that to the musicians. What parts have we cut? What parts are we speeding up? Uh, just for everybody to get a feel of what's going on. Um, without all the tech elements involved, because that would be just way too many things on top of each other. Sits, sits probe does actually mean you you sit and sing, stand and sing. In opera, we normally sits, but there's been a number of productions where we vondel. We do a vondel probe, which means the singers walk around on stage while they're singing with the orchestra. Uh, this is necessary. Uh, we we did it for Burke and Hare especially because some of the action took place behind the orchestra and some took place in front of the orchestra. So we wanted to make sure that the performers could see Maestro at all times and that they could hear and see cues in all the different locations that they were standing in on stage. So in the opera world especially, uh, it, there's a big difference between like a Vondel probe and a Sitz probe, depending on what the conductor wants. Even when you do a Vondel probe, though, as Stacey said, you don't use any other tech elements and there's you there's not scene changes you have a bare minimum crew usually just one person to turn on lights um 
but it is not always just sit and sing. It depends on the location and what your maestro wants as far as uh, performers moving around on stage. Yeah, so then we go through the SIDS probe, and usually the or- uh, it depends on the contract. Sometimes you don't see the orchestra again for a day or two. Sometimes the orchestra starts right after that. Then we go into what's called dress rehearsals, which by now, hopefully, all the main tech elements have been worked out. And now we add costumes, wig, and makeup. We kind of layer things on one at a time because it would be an absolute train wreck if we tried to throw everything on all at once. So the actors learn their parts. Then we get on stage and we give them set pieces and we start turning lights on and off on them. And then we usually give them microphones and props and see how they work with those. And then we give them hair and makeup and costumes and see how they work with those. Uh, You know, make sure everything's worked out. If there's quick changes, where do the quick changes happen? On what side of the stage? Who's helping? How long do they have? If a prop needs gets dropped by an actor on stage right but has to re-enter on stage left, who's moving it over there? Does it change at any point on the way over there? Does a sandwich get half eaten before it gets over there? You know what happens and then we get to uh usually final dress meaning final dress rehearsal which is before you get an invite uh, an audience in uh it's the same as a regular dress rehearsal we just add final so that everyone knows this is it uh then depending on the production some people go into what are called previews which means you do have an audience and it is run just like a show, but usually the director or producer or someone will come out and explain to the audience, who probably have had cheaper tickets because it's not an actual performance, explain to the audience that this is still technically a tech uh, tech rehearsal. The designers and production team are still sitting in the house or the audience. If anything happens, things could be changed. The show may be stopped at any point if anything goes awry. And depending on night to night, the show could change. If you put it in front of an audience, this is especially true with new works, and you've been working on something for months, and so it just makes sense to you, but you put it in front of an audience who's never seen it before, and half the audience has no idea what's going on during certain scenes, then you might go back the next day before the show and rework some things, maybe change the scenes around a little bit, maybe add a song, maybe do something and then try it again the next night to see how the audience reacts. Because, in honesty, the only reason we do theater is for other people to also come and enjoy theater. So if they don't know what's going on, kind of useless for the rest of us. So we go through previews, work out whatever issues or with the script, with the tech, with whatever's going on during previews. Then we get to opening night. Opening night is usually a bigger celebration. Um, It's usually the last day of designers and director and everything. Usually their contracts end on opening night. Uh, Then it gets handed over officially completely to the stage manager um, and the crew and running people backstage. Usually you don't see directors and designers again after that. If you do, they're just coming to enjoy the show and not actually to give notes or change anything. Um, And it's opening night that we do the run of the show, meaning however many performances for how long. Then we get to closing night where it does, uh, it's just the last show. That's all it means. Last show, closing of the curtains. And then we do strike. Now, strike in the bigger outside world means you're protesting something. You don't like what's going on. You're striking. In our world, it means take apart the set. 
take down the lights, put the costumes back in their storage or clean them and send them back to where you rented them, make sure props are returned, make sure, you know, everybody is out of the theater and everything is returned to the way it was when you first got there. And depending on the size of the show, this could take two or three hours, this could take a week. So strike just simply means tear it down, get it out of there, return it to where it needs to go. So that's kind of the the process of running and the different terms we use for that. Uh, did I miss anything very exciting, Twin? Mm, no, I think you got most of the backstage stuff. Yeah. I went through a lot of the notes I wrote. <laughs> well, that's good. So then some of the other more exciting things besides all the textbook words and definitions and all are all the lures and legends and how certain words came about, which uh, is always fun and interesting. And if some people are very superstitious, especially in the theater world, if you say something wrong, you can get thrown outside and not welcome back in. You might have to turn around in circles so many times, spit over your shoulder. Theater people are very, very superstitious. Uh, Twin, what what superstition should we start with? What I think is funny is some of these are much more theater drama related than they are opera world related. Such as um, the Scottish play. So Macbeth is a bad word in in the theater. Uh, More so, I think, in dramas than in opera. But I do believe opera people follow it. So you're, you're not allowed to say Macbeth. The reasoning behind this is apparently there were some very famous performances of Macbeth um, where something tragic happened to a lead performer. Um, Stanislavski and Charleston Heston both played Macbeth in Macbeth and had something horrible happen to them during the run of the show, which is how this kind of superstition got started. Also, it's rumored that Abe Lincoln read Macbeth the day before he was murdered. In a theater. In, right, that day before he was murdered in a theater. So some of the things that happen if you say the word Macbeth is you're supposed to you know, turn around in a circle three times on stage and ask for forgiveness or you get kicked out of the theater and, and somebody has to invite you back into the theater. You throw salt over your shoulder. There's all these different things that you can do to um, quote unquote appease the ghosts of Macbeth. It's I, I haven't heard it too much in opera a few years back. I actually did a version, an opera version of Macbeth, and you could tell who the theater trained people were because they wouldn't say it, and all the opera people kept saying it all the time, and that show went out with, without a hitch pretty much. So We, we also have... didn't do that show in a theater. We did it in a cruise ship terminal, so well, it's possible <laughs> that had something to do with it, too. the ghost words in there. Yeah, I don't think so that many was, of the ghosts there. That was there. a big one. Uh, one for, that... for that show, one of the, the things you do say is either the Scottish play or McBee. So if you hear people just say McBee or the Scottish show, don't say, oh, are you talking about? Yeah, no, we know. You don't need to say Macbeth. Uh, another one which I love is break a leg. So instead of saying good luck for an opening night or for performance, you say break a leg. And the story that I'd always heard about how that got started was that during vaudevillian times, a vaudevillian show had a whole bunch of different acts and they usually had like an A, A-list acts and B-list acts that would rotate on a regular basis. And if you're like a B 
performing group, the only way you would be able to go on stage is if something happened to an A-list group. So you would say break a leg in hopes that, you know, somebody who's better than you would break a leg, couldn't perform, and then you were able to go out onto the stage and do your performance. But apparently there's a number of, of different stories about where this came from. For example, the ancient Greek practice was to stomp your feet instead of applauding. So if you stomped your feet hard enough, somebody might break a leg. Or during Elizabethan times, to break a leg is to consider or is to bow, to kind of, you know, put your leg out and bow. So it might come from being able to make it through an entire performance and get to the bow at the very end. Another one that I heard was kind of along the uh, Greek practice where you stomp is set pieces or uh, stages were built with wooden legs to hold up the pieces. So if you stomped hard enough, you would break the legs of the theater. That means you gave a really good performance because everybody would be stomping and you would break the stage. So those are the some of, some of the different research that I found on break a leg. This is also kind of a theater thing. In opera, you say toy, 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 which, you know, after doing years of opera, you would think I would know what that means. But yeah, you don't no usually idea. say break a leg, you say toy, toy, toy for uh, opera. And if there's any opera people listening to this, I know I'm a horrible opera stage manager, but you still don't say good luck in in either one of those. Um, Another one that I think is really interesting is uh, no whistling on stage. So this actually started, I don't remember the time period. Stacey might be able to answer some of that, but back when rigging was first introduced to the theater and in the beginning when you would fly as Stacy mentioned earlier fly pieces in and out set pieces in and out what companies would do would be hire sailors because the rigging of the theater was set up in a similar way that rigging on a uh, sail a, a sailboat was set up mm-hmm. so there'd be sailors backstage running the show the way they communicate with each other on a sailboat is to whistle to each other to give each other different cues to let each other know when something has to fly in or out so you're not supposed to whistle on stage because that might cue a crew person to drop a piece of furniture on your head rigging wise now i think Uh, that's a very old superstition because i don't know anyone today who has any knowledge of sail ships who works in theater (laughs) Right, exactly. But you're still not supposed to whistle on stage, which is hard for people who whistle all the time, like I do. Uh, in college, I kept getting in trouble for it because I would just walk around whistling the songs that are stuck in my head, and everyone's like, no, you can't do that. Yeah, and so I can't whistle at all, so it'd be easy for me not to get in trouble, but also I couldn't cue anything because I can't whistle. <laughs> I can't whistle to you. Um, another thing backstage, this is not a s- superstition but the question of where does the term green room come from? Oh, yeah. I so get asked that all the time. <laughs> Everybody always asks, why is it called a green room? So a green room in theater is usually a common area where performers can hang out when they're not on stage. Uh, this is separate from their dressing rooms. It's a common area. Usually there's some couches, uh, maybe a little kitchenette, water. It's just, it's a common area. Usually there's a monitor in there so that they can hear what's going on stage. Sometimes a video monitor so they can watch what's going on on stage. It's usually close to the the stage so that people can find them. Right. 
So why is it called a green room? Well, the research I found in, in early days, lighting, before we had all these awesome lights that we do now. Um, I.e. electricity. <laughs> yeah, right. Before electricity. Shows were lit. Well, there was some electricity with a thing called limelight. And limelight gave out like a green tint, kind of like um, fluorescent lights are a little bit yellower and LED lights have a little bit more of a blue tint. So limelight literally was green. So the theory was that the actors had to be in a green, physically a green room to put their makeup on so that they could see what they would look like look like on stage under a limelight. Um, I've never heard that before, but that was a lot of the research that I found. Another yeah, one was the top the, ones I saw too. It was called a green room because that's where all the stage flowers and topiary was stored. Sometimes it's just a storage room. Um, At the Long Beach Playhouse, the, the green room for the downstage main stage uh, also has a lot of the plants and stuff in it. So I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Maybe that's why it's called. It's a green just room. open space, so it has the bigger props in it. Another thing I found says that um, in early theaters, the there they didn't have enough space, and so the singers or the performers would hang out outside. So it was called a green room. Um, one of them said that the room is painted green because psychology uh, psychologically, a green room is much more calming than something that's red or pink. So it's supposed to be very calming for the performers to sit in a green room. I've and heard that people get. That I found, I've heard that people what? get sick and throw up, so it's green. Oh to yeah, nausea. I, I didn't have that one written down. The last one was that it's it's the it's sometimes the same as the ticketing room, or can be where where box office is at the top of the show. So it's where people go and count the money during the run of the show. So it's called the green room because of money. Um. That yeah, one I really don't believe as nobody much. knows. Yeah, I Everybody think that's the answer for a lot of theater questions. It started, half somebody the, still does it, who knows. Half the time, green rooms that I've worked with aren't even green. So, you know, nobody really knows. Yeah, at the Norris, the room is green. At the Playhouse, they have two different rooms. Neither one of them are green. Uh, Opera Santa Barbara, their room... I think it was it had a greenish carpet. Yeah, it changes. We never really went down into it. Yeah, yeah I don't really I feel like everywhere it's different, but anyways, it's called a green room no matter what. Um oh another superstition that I found a lot of when I was doing research, which Stacy and I both had not really ever heard of, is that you aren't supposed to wear blue on stage. So it, I'm not. It, I think so. Yeah. The research I found says it has its practical roots in the early theatrical costuming. Blue was the most expensive color dye, and blue garments were put on stage at companies that were failing um, to kind of trick the audience into thinking that the producers actually had money. So now you don't. You're not supposed to wear blue because it's supposed to represent the fact that your company's failing. But a way to get around that is to put indigo on stage or to prove that you actually are wealthy and that you're not failing is to counterbalance the blue on stage by, I think it's a silver lining, line the costume with a silver fabric on top of the blue. And that shows that you do have money. I've, 
I've never heard of this, but I literally found like seven different sites that said this was a huge no, no, don't wear blue on stage. There was also one that said like, you're not supposed to wear ostrich feathers on stage, which I never heard of. Yeah, neither had I. And like Frozen is just, I think today that they were recording this, I think it just opened on Broadway. It's been playing at the Hyperion at Disneyland for a while, but that would be terrible because I mean, Elsa's whole outfit is blue. So yeah, she has silver, right? Oh, yeah, maybe she has silver lining. Okay, silver. good. Disney's not failing in yeah. case anyone was wondering. But yeah, I've never <laughs> heard of those before. I've never heard even costumers say that or lining people or that's weird. So I think that's one of the ones that is slowly dying out because, uh, yeah, haven't heard of that one before. Yeah, I have heard, and this is not a superstition, but, you know, uh, lighting wise, you don't put anything white, pure white on stage necessarily because it's going to pick up your eye anywhere you go um there are some cases that you do put white on stage like when we i did um traviata we did put our our violetta in white in the end when she's dying because you want all the focus to be on her she should be the focus of the stage but for the most part when you see white on stage it's usually not a pure white it's a a dyed down white otherwise the uh, entire audience is just going to stare at the like bright white thing on stage and it reflects light everywhere anyone who stands next to him like it's just a glowing beacon on stage uh for allegiance the the nurse campbell is a nurse factor in world war ii so her whole outfit is white and at the and she wears white throughout the whole thing but in, in general it's a fairly lit show and when we're in nighttime she has this uh kind of cape jacket that she puts on which is a darker brown green color Uh, at the end of the show we had all the or snehal had all the people in his life walk out on stage and it's supposed to be a very somber moment where uh the lead character who is george decay is you know kind of accepting his past and moving on and forgiving his sister and all that and here's the nurse in bright white just standing there upstaging everyone because she's just this glowing bright white so then for the next rehearsal when we watched it she suddenly was toned down and had to put the cape on the jacket on because even just standing there doing nothing she was upstaging everybody so white is a very hard color to to light to keep clean to not draw attention to like i said sometimes you want to put people in bright white because you want them to be the focus of stage yeah so it's definitely a very strong choice definitely a choice the, the last thing I have on my list that I wanted to talk about, which not really superstitions, but just this like this thing that is constantly coming up for theater. And Stacey and I and Kai had this discussion when we, we started the podcast. Do you spell it R-E or E-R? It's this, this big thing that I remember years and years and years having this discussion all the time. So, again, I, I did some research and I looked up some stuff. And as far as I can tell, there really is no like right or wrong answer. Some of the stuff I found said that the British way of spelling it is R-E versus the American, which is E-R. The other one that I found, which I can kind of agree with, is to say a theater as a as a building, as a place to go see a performance is spelled R-E versus the act of theater, like of putting on a show. A theatrical performance is ER, but 90% of the, the research I did just said, really, it's just a preference. It's just whatever you feel like doing. Um, 
even when you look at theaters across the United States or opera companies, you know, half of them go one way, half of them go the other way. So there's not really a general rule. Uh, Stacey and I did decide we wanted to spell it R-E. Maybe it's because we love London. Uh, yeah, so I always say R-E. I think it looks better that way. So that's what we did. But it's still up for debate. Do you want to do R-E? Do you want to do E-R? If you can find uh, research that says, yes, it has to be one way or another, I'd love to read it. But everything I read was just kind of like, you know, it could be a building. It could be the act of putting on theater. It could be British. It could be American. It could just be your personal preference, you know. Yeah, there's whatever. no... So we don't think there's anything right or wrong about which way. Personally, we prefer RE. Uh, I think two things, Twin, that you forgot that I always uh, find to be true in the theater world is both the ghost light and bad dress rehearsal good opening. Mm. <laughs> you completely forgot about those two. Uh, so the ghost light is a... It's always just like... A pole with a light bulb screwed on top of it. And an extension cord. Usually on wheels. Very simple. Like, one light. on wheels. Yeah. Uh, this is called the ghost light. Now, there are a number of reasons that it is put out. There is the practical reason of usually when you enter the stage or you leave the stage, it's dark. Because there are no lights on. And to get to the light switch is usually not like a house a regular home house where you walk in the front door or of any room and right on your right or left is a switch and da-da, lights in the house. Nope. Lighting on stage is usually somewhere not easy to get to. There are set pieces everywhere. So you leave a light on stage so that people can see their way to and from the light and don't trip and fall. Now, some of the other theories behind it are that a ghost light is there so that the ghost, because every theater has a ghost, doesn't play tricks on the last person going in or out of the theater um, and mess them up or push them over or do something like that. So it's kind of a keep the ghost happy so they don't hurt you uh, or just screw with you. Most ghosts in theaters are not vindictive. They usually just play tricks. Uh, One theory for the ghost light is kind of a you know, set an empty table, empty chair at the table for a fancy meal or something. Um, as a respect to the ghost, you leave this on in remembrance of all the ghosts who live in the theater. Uh, I, I'm not entirely sure if I believe in ghosts in theater. There are plenty of things that happen. I do appease the ghost, but uh, I use the ghost light to mostly see where I'm walking. So that's uh, <laughs> it's a very practical thing to have on stage. Um, an unknown fact I was reading is one. One. Okay, I'm going to go then. Well, you might uh, be you might be saying the one that I was going to say. Uh, oh. uh, one of the facts that I read that I thought was interesting is in equity theaters, the ghost light was a physical alert alert to everybody else on stage that they are done and off the clock and not getting paid anymore. Typically, the stage manager is the last person to leave and the first person in, and they set out the ghost light. So if actors are hanging around or crew people are hanging around and just chatting, once the ghost light goes out, it's like, okay, that's it. We're done. Get out of the theater. Or we're not paying you anymore after this. You can sit here and chat for all you want, but you're not getting overtime for this because we're technically done with rehearsal. (laughs) Yeah, or the show or anything. So there's... If you walk into any dark theater, there is a ghost light somewhere in the middle of the stage that will be on. If not, then somebody's usually going to get in trouble once that's found out. Uh, The last one, or not the last one, but 
the one that I was talking about, is bad dress rehearsal equals good openings. You don't know how many dress rehearsals or finer, final dress that go on that are just complete shit shows. Somehow you go through tech and things are, you know, you're working out problems and people are taking notes and you think you got it figured out and then you get to a rehearsal and everything goes wrong. Crew members are getting their feet run over, people are missing their spikes, actors are forgetting lines, stage managers lose cues. It's just a terrible show. Everyone's stressed. Everyone's nervous. Directors and producers are freaking out because it's going to be bad. But then you get to opening night and somehow it all goes smoothly. It's like getting all the bad juices out before you get an audience out there. And it always makes for a very stressful day, but it almost always ends up being a good opening. And I have no idea why that happens, but it's a well-known well, the, saying. The theory, the theory that I've heard behind that, and I kind of tend to believe, is when you have like really good tech rehearsals and everything's going really well, performers and tech and everybody kind of relax a bit. Because you're like, oh, this is going really well. I know what you're doing. And you relax enough that then you forget what you're doing on final dress because you're too relaxed. So then the reason opening night goes really well is because you're so stressed or so um, Focused. super aware yeah, of everything that you missed on final dress that you're determined not to make any of the same mistakes on opening night. So for me, it's a much more practical thing, you know, like, oh, my God, I can't believe I missed 10 cues on final dress. I'm determined to not miss any of those cues. And so you're just like super alert to what's going on. I personally hate bad final dress equals good opening night. I prefer to be close to perfect as often as possible. So <laughs> good job. I try to be alert all the time. Um, what I have noticed, though, is sometimes when you have a, a really, really amazing opening night that you have what you call like a second performance slump for the, an exact same reason. You have such an amazing opening night that you relax and you think, oh, I know what I'm doing. And then you're so relaxed that you miss you miss cues or you miss lines or you miss notes on the, the second performance. So in the opera world, you don't necessarily hear um, bad final dress it's good opening night, but you do hear the, um, you know, second performance slump because everybody is just more relaxed and all the adrenaline from opening night is gone. And then you tend to not do so good on the, the second performance. But again, I try really hard to not do that. And in the opera world, it's, I, I guess you notice it a little bit, but not, not huge. So anyways, these are the words we came up with well we didn't come up with and like make up out of nowhere but these are a lot of the words that we noticed a lot of people when you talk to outside of the theater world don't know or get confused on so we thought it would be good to share with people uh also superstitions are always fun to learn and some history about them and if people believe they're true or not uh as we said most theater people are at least theater i don't know about opera but a lot of theater people are quite superstitious so yes don't say mcbee don't do those things on stage uh, and yeah, let us know if you have any words that we've been using you don't understand, or if you're interested in what, uh, if you've heard a superstition and want to know if we've heard it or had anybody tell us about it, uh, let us know. You can always find us 
Facebook, on Instagram, uh, follow our podcast on Podbean. There are so many ways to get a hold of us. Uh, Twitter, all under Twins Talk Theater. So let us know what you think. And if you have any questions or any exciting words or superstitions that we should talk about. Thank you for listening. Thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more, visit our website at twinstalktheater.podbean.com and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can also interact with us on Facebook or Instagram at Twinstalk Theater. Tato Music, Dance Macabre, is provided by Kevin McLeod of incomtech.com under Creative Commons License 3.0.